Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We actually have two good martinis today, we think. We're also brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. You can learn a whole lot more about it by going to netsuite.com slash martini. And we'll also tell you more about it a little bit later in the podcast. So, Jim, let's dive right in and get to our first good martini. And tomorrow we'll get the actual jobs report for July. Folks are a little bit skittish about what we're going to see because the private sector report from ADP earlier this week was well below the expectations, like a tenth of the expectations. So uh, brace yourself for that. But we do have some good news from the Department of Labor. In the week ending August 1st, the advance figure for seasonally adjusted initial jobless claims was 1,186,000, which is generally not considered good news, Jim, but compared to where we have been since this pandemic started, it actually is good news. Uh, The four-week moving average was 1,337,750. Uh, So that is a decrease of 31,000 from the previous week's revised average. Also, the advanced number for seasonally adjusted insured unemployment during the week ending July 25th was 16,107,000, a decrease of 844,000 from the previous week's revised level. So that metric is clearly going in the right direction. So it seems like we're stopping the bleeding. You know, dear listeners, Greg just dropped a whole bunch of numbers on you, and you probably feel like you're being audited right now. So let me boil it down and say, look, the numbers are generally moving in the right direction. Not necessarily as fast as we'd like to see, but you'd much rather see that. And I think it's this is more or less what we probably should have expected. We had this massive shutdown in the spring, nothing anything like it. And of course, we saw a massive drop in employment, massive spike in unemployment claims. Uh, as the pandemic progresses and people start saying, okay, we can reopen some, we can reopen our businesses somewhat. Restaurants, you're allowed to reopen, but only a certain amount of capacity. You start seeing some jobs come back. And we did see, actually, you know, I think they revised the number up to more than 4 million jobs in a month. But that's the easy part. That was the part where people are like, okay, now, it's, you know, now we are now in the, the tougher part of the climb. That we're probably going to be having some slower pace of this until we've got a vaccine, until we end up in the post-coronavirus era which probably isn't going to get here until if we're really lucky end of the year, probably more likely sometime in 2021. That having been said, you don't want to backslide. And so far, these numbers are not showing that. So would we love a faster pace of job creation? Sure. Would we love a slower pace of people filing for unemployment? Yes. But generally, things are moving in the right direction. And considering how some places have had big spikes in cases, particularly in the Sunbelt states, um, it's rather reassuring that we haven't seen another you know, increase in unemployment. So, so far, numbers are still going in the direction we'd like them to, even if it's, you know, trying to climb out of a very deep, deep hole. Absolutely right. And you, but you mentioned the, uh, the horizon, the light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine. Uh, two things I saw in the news in the last few days that pour a little bit of cold water on that. Number one, you've got some scientists, uh, even Fauci out there saying, look, this isn't a cure-all. Fauci basically saying we might never be rid of the coronavirus. And then you also had a story out today showing that only 42% of Americans are definitely willing to take the vaccine. So it's going to be a little bit of a, of a ride here as we as we get rolling here, if and when this vaccine ever actually uh, gets developed. And this is a, a mutating thing. So that's a, a bigger mm-hmm. challenge than I think a lot of folks realize. Greg, every time I hear that, I'm like, hey, great, more vaccine for me. On the one hand, I get that. And I particularly understand when you know that this is a vaccine that has been developed faster than ever before. 
my, you know, it was interesting. They put the question to Fauci and Fauci's like, look, you know, I'm, I'm in a risk category, but I'm sure there are people who are in higher risk categories. I'll take it at the time that seems appropriate for me. Greg, I think there'll be a lot of people who will be jumping to be second in line to get this vaccine. You want it early, but you just want to see that first batch of people to see if anybody starts, you know, uh, having any severe side effects or growing a third arm or something like that. Well, the first people, I think, or at least very early in line, will be the military. So let's really hope they get this right. All right. Speaking of getting things right, you want to make sure that your business is operating as efficiently as possible, that you're on top of everything that you need to when it comes to your business finances and everything else when it comes to running your operations. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. America's ready to get back to work. But to win in the new economy, you need every advantage to succeed. And that's why smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over your financials, human resources, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, and it's all in one place. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite lets you manage every penny with precision. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join more than 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business. So right now you can receive a free guide entitled Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now and Schedule Your Free Product Tour at netsuite.com slash martini. Again, get that free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash martini. netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about our second good martini now, and we're talking presidential debates. We mentioned in passing sometime this week that uh, the Trump campaign would like to have at least one debate before any state begins early voting. And now they've got more of a formal plan to do that. They want the, the Commission on Presidential Debates to add a fourth debate sometime in early September before any states begin their early voting process. Or they want to move one of the existing debates back so there would still be three debates, but at least one of them would be held before anybody actually votes, which makes a lot of sense, Jim. Uh, we know that uh, the Trump campaign is putting a lot of emphasis on this uh, debate. If the polls are accurate, he's, he's going to need them probably to get in front of Joe Biden or at least try to. Uh, and of course, the Biden campaign is kind of schizophrenic on this. You've got a lot of Democrats out there saying you shouldn't debate at all. Uh, others saying he's going to be fine. Biden and his wife have both said they still plan to do the debate. So uh, hard to know exactly what is going to happen here. But wanting a debate before anyone actually votes doesn't seem crazy. Yeah, look, one of the things that jumps out here, yes, you know, there's no two ways about it. Traditionally, the, the candidate who is behind wants debates. They need some event to shake up the race. They need something that will challenge the perceptions of the leading candidate. Right now, I'd say the most likely scenario is that they stick to the schedule they have. They have three debates, one vice presidential debate, and life proceeds as normally. But I think probably the second most likely scenario is that we have no debate. Uh, you have Trump making this argument. He has a pretty reasonable argument because of the early voting. And unless you could say, okay, a couple of states have this crazy rule where you can start 45 days before election day. Well, in a year like this with the pandemic and more states looking to voting by mail and people not wanting to stand online outside a polling place come November, 
um, it's probably pretty likely you're going to have a lot more Americans partaking of early voting. And maybe it makes sense to have another debate or to push up one of the debates a little bit sooner so that it occurs before ballots start getting cast. Now, of course, people who are voting early probably aren't that likely to change their votes. Uh, but remember, we had a lot of early voting last time around, and we had a couple October surprises from James Comey saying, at the FBI saying, oh, by the way, we reopened the Hillary Clinton investigation, and then saying a little bit later, okay, we cleared it, there's no new evidence, the case is closed. One of these years, you're going to have people who cast ballots, and they're going to have some grand October surprise revelation. Uh, here are the photos of the candidate with a goat, you know, that kind of stuff. And you'll end up with people say, oh, my goodness, I didn't want to cast the ballot for that person. Give me my ballot back. I want to change my vote. And the election officials will say no, because once you cast a ballot, there are no take backs. Our, our system of election laws are not designed to have people changing their mind after they cast their ballot. That's why they tell you to take it seriously. Um, so, you know, the Trump campaign is in a situation where they're going to say to Biden, hey, we should do more debates. And the Biden campaign, my guess, is going to say no. Now, they are probably going to say this because they're going to want to keep the status quo. But the thing is, these things tend to have a momentum of their own. The moment Biden says no to something, the Trump campaign will argue, with some justification, that Biden is afraid to debate. And my suspicion is, is that this fight will get worse and worse. This will start to dominate a few news cycles. And at some point, the Biden campaign will find some reason to say, you know what, if this is the way Trump's going to do it, we're not going to do any debates. And this way, Joe Biden, who is well ahead, doesn't have to get up on that stage because, as we've seen from a whole bunch of these commentators, it's worth noting, these are just generally Democrats. They are not part of the Biden campaign, but they're fairly prominent or they're, you know, very prominent Trump critics like Bill Kristol, who are pretty clearly say don't think having debates this year is a good idea. And it could be that, oh, Trump is so irresponsible and he lies so much, blah, 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 blah. Or it could be that we can all imagine a scenario where Donald Trump goes after Biden, goes after him hard and says, you know, your, your son is a crook. You covered up his corruption. You're a failure as vice president. You're a doddering old man. And the moment you get into office, your vice president's going to want to take over. You know, you, you can imagine that. And you could imagine Biden either freezing or uh, tripping over his words, having some exchange that goes badly for him. I think this many Democrats saying we shouldn't have debates means they can imagine this exact same scenario that you and I are talking about right now. So I think for once, Trump has the advantage here. I think he has a situation where he's going to say, hey, this many people voting early. Let's have an early debate. Let's debate earlier. Let's have another debate. And Biden's going to be Biden. Unless the Biden team says, sure, let's do it. The Biden team is convinced their candidate can go out there 90 minutes standing and sitting three times, maybe four times. My guess is at some point there's some exchange there that would go badly for Biden. I think it's probably the, the weakest part of his campaign right now. So we'll see how things shake out. But uh, it's not many days we get to say, hey, you know, the, the Trump campaign has a good strategy on this and it seems to be working. But uh, so far, that I think that's the case. Jim, I'm a little bit curious about how many folks out loud from the president on down on the right are setting the expectations what I think are going to be way too low for Joe Biden. So if, in fact, debates happen, and I think at this point the odds are probably likely that some debate is going to happen, I think a lot of pro-Trump people are setting the, the expectations to the point where if Joe Biden doesn't drool over his shoes and just mumble the entire time, uh, especially if he gets through the first half hour or even hour fairly coherently, uh, everybody's going to decide, well, yeah, I don't know what everybody was talking about. Uh, he sounded fairly normal to me. Uh, whereas if you set the, uh, the stage for I'm going to beat him on these competing ideas, then as a surprise to people, he can't string a sentence together. That would have a bigger impact. You know, Greg, that's a perfectly valid point. But I would note, I think I watched almost all of them, 
Joe Biden had some good nights. Joe Biden had some not good nights. And there were nights where he seemed pretty sharp, doing okay. And then there were some nights where he really looked aged and slow and uh, not quite ready to respond to all the attacks that were coming his way. Um, we don't know what we would get from Biden in three debates. I, I think, you know, it's worth noting most of those debates in this primary had Biden sharing the stage with about nine other candidates. And they only came to Biden every couple minutes, at least early on. Uh, the debate got smaller eventually, and it was you know, the final one was just himself against Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has his own challenges when it comes to being as, to the debates. I think it's fair to say you give us three debates of 90 minutes. At some point, Biden would have some moment that wouldn't look great, and that would feature in Trump campaign ads from now until November. Would that be enough to swing the election? God only knows. But uh, I think there's good reason for Democrats to be worried about that. All right, Jim, let's move on to our final martini. And I think this is crazy. The shoe is now on the other foot for Rhode Island. Um, if folks are serious devotees to this podcast, you'll know that we did a crazy martini pretty early on in the pandemic where Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo was basically banning people from New York. They had troopers uh, pulling people over on the side of the highway, telling them they couldn't be in the state or they had to uh, either have papers declaring themselves virus-free and have specific plans on where they were staying. Very chilling type of uh, tactics at that point. But now the shoe's on the other foot because New York, of course, is declaring itself cured of, of COVID-19, whereas Rhode Island's numbers are on the rise. And so now New York and now Massachusetts are telling people from Rhode Island not to come to their states. Uh, they need to quarantine for 14 days or better yet, just don't come at all. So people who wanted to go from Rhode Island to you know Martha's Vineyard or Cape Cod, uh, not necessarily able to do that this year. So the New England war over uh, whether you can go to the neighboring state is uh, 180 degrees different than it was a few months ago. Yeah, and this folds into kind of a broader theme I wrote about in today's Morning Jolt newsletter, which is that, you know, about two weeks ago, you probably heard listeners to this podcast spent a good chunk of July hearing about how terrible the outbreak was in the Sun Belt states, in Florida, in Texas, in Arizona, uh, sometimes Georgia and South Carolina and states like that. And that was all very, very much true. And you weren't seeing the blue states get hit as hard, in part because particularly in the Northeast, those blue states got hit hard in the spring. Well, now there's this uptick in cases in not just in um, uh, Rhode Island, but also in places like Massachusetts, also in places like New Jersey. Uh, and not just also outside the Northeast, Illinois, Hawaii, which had had very low rates and stuff. And you're starting to see these governors, I don't want to say turning on each other is necessarily the right term, but basically right now, the states of Connecticut, Massachusetts, both of which border Rhode Island, and also New York and New Jersey do not want people from Rhode Island coming in without a note saying that they've passed the test or, or a 14-day self-quarantine. Uh, and in fact, as we mentioned, you know, Bill de Blasio is having New York's uh, police officers uh, check people coming into the city. Because I think, Greg, if there's anything we've learned this year, it's that people love to see the police stopping people for no reason at random and asking for their papers, right? I mean, that's that's what the big rallies were for. We trust the police and we believe that there's equal treatment under the law these days. No way that could go wrong, right? Gina Raimondo was being uh, tossed around as a possible running mate, but uh, now she has the the scorn of Cuomo and I guess Baker and uh, you know it's just a just an ugly uh, Northeast elite spitting match here. Yeah, I was going to say I think the the deep dark lesson is that state policies do not have an overwhelming impact on whether a virus gets spread. There's really been this un, you know depressingly consistent pattern that I laid out, which is you know the virus is there, 
Uh, most people think, ah, it can't happen to me, and they go about their daily life in a way that's largely similar to the way it was before the pandemic. There are people having parties coast to coast, north to south, all across, you know, Jersey Shore, uh, up in New England, uh, you name the place, there have been people, young people having parties. And the virus gets spread, case numbers go, numbers go up, hospitalization rates go up, uh, death rates go up. Local officials say, oh, my God, and they start really freaking out and they start passing mask laws and they start having, you know, much more emphatic public messaging. The public recognizes this and all of a sudden the public says, wow, this thing is real. I'd better start wearing masks. I'd better stop having parties. I'd better stop, you know, and people start social distancing more consistently and the numbers start to go down. And as I laid out in the news, morning newsletter, Texas, Florida, South Carolina and Arizona have all had fairly significant drops over the last two weeks. I think what happens is the virus comes, cases go up. People take a while to recognize it. Once they do, they alter their behavior. Cases go back down again. That is the that is the cycle. It's the circle of life, Simba. And my suspicion is is that they don't really care what their governor is saying in any particular situation. I think it you know unfortunately a lot of people have to learn through experience. And so the the upshot of all this is that these you know that people are really wedded to this narrative of oh my party's governors are doing a great job and your party's governors are doing this terrible job. I think when all is said and done, we're going to look at it and there's probably not going to be any of the 50 states that have really been spared this and that this is going to be a matter of, you know, a bit like a wildfire. This kind of had to burn through to a certain level until people were going to take it seriously, alter their behavior, and then the cases would go back down again. Well, Jim, let's hope that those numbers keep going down, especially in some of the states that are struggling with it right now. Uh, See you tomorrow. Have a good one. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please don't forget about our great sponsor, NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash martini. Also, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>